You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking to Nicholas Nethercoat, a member of the Rust Programming Languages Performance Working Group and author of the Rust Performance Book. We talk about how he and others have worked to speed up Rust's compiler, different strategies for speeding up compilers in general, and how compiler performance fits into the working dynamic of Rust's ecosystem of contributors. And now, speeding up Rust's compiler. All right, Nicholas, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Richard. So first of all, I wanted to start by just saying thank you because you work on making Rust faster. And I, I've mentioned this on past podcast episodes, but that's like my number one thing that I want to see about Rust is like, I, I don't really care about any new features other than making it faster. And you're actually fighting that fight. So I really appreciate it, <laughs> the work that you're doing on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, so I, I definitely focus on making the compiler itself faster rather than you know the generated code faster that other people do that, that sort of work. Yes, you're not alone in having this desire. Like a, a few a few years ago, when I started on this work, like it was almost universally the number one complaint about Rust. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I remember back in 2016 when I first looked at this, and you know, Rust was pretty new in those days, and a lot of people were writing blog posts where you know they'd say, "Oh, I've been trying Rust, and here's the good things," and they, you know, the usual stories about memory safety and expressive type system and cargo and so on. And then and then they would say, "And here's the bad things." It was almost always the first bad thing was compile time suck. Has that changed? I mean, are... it, it has changed. Like now, sometimes people complain about that instead of like everybody complaining about that. It's definitely got better. So one thing I'm curious about, you mentioned that you work on the Rust compiler. So as I understand it, there's three different pieces. Like if I run a cargo build and I'm like, build my whole Rust project, there's three different components there, the three different uh, executables, let's say, that are involved in actually making that compiled binary. So one is Rust-C, which is the Rust compiler that compiles a .rs file. And then there's Cargo that does the whole project and package dependencies and all that stuff, many RS files. And then there's the linker, which is like LD or like some system linker that's built in the operating system or else a third party one like LLD, which ships with LLVM or Mold, uh, which is developed under a different license and stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious uh, if you have a sense of how those break down in terms of impact on like if I do cargo build, I mean, how much of the time is I don't know if you know off the top of your head, but mm-hmm. uh, like how much of it is Rust-C versus cargo versus linking? Does it depend on the project? Yeah, that's a fair question. So I think the the first part is cargo itself is not going to be very much time. Okay. That's not a, not a problem. Although the follow-on to that is that the way that cargo invokes the compiler can certainly have an effect in terms of parallelization, whether things are being compiled at the same time, the dependencies and so on. That, that gets really complicated really quickly with optimal scheduling and so on. Generally, I would say, yeah, the compiler itself, Rust-C itself is going to be most of the time, the, definitely the biggest piece. And that you can even break into sort of two halves. You've got the front end, which is the part that's written in Rust. And then you've got the back end, which by default is LLVM. And again, whether LLVM is the bigger component or whether Rust-C is the bigger component is going to de- depend on the code. And then the linker is certainly a significant thing, particularly if you're doing, say, incremental builds and you're only you know modifying, say, a leaf crate. And so the amount of compilation time. So the, then the linker can be expensive and switching to a a faster linker like LLD can make quite a big difference in that case. I've also heard linker can be a big deal on like really big projects where you have a huge amount of code just by virtue of it getting multiplied. Yep, definitely. We have a we have a sort of a long-standing issue to switch to LLD to be the default linker. I think that issue is now 5 years old and has had several different people work on it and I don't under, I won't claim to understand the full details because it's apparently it's just way more complicated than you might expect. Well, I think it, uh, I mean, last I checked, I mean, maybe this has changed, but I don't think it has. Um, LLD just kind of didn't work on Mac OS. It was just not there yet. Yeah. Because we looked into the same thing for Rock, the language I've been working on. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, that was kind of our conclusion is like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not really there. Yeah. Even I think this, this issue is, is, is focusing on just getting this working, even just shipping it for Linux as a default. And even on Linux, which is kind of the easy case, there are still edge cases or complications. There are people working on this and hopefully it will happen at some point, but surprisingly slow, slow process this one. So I asked you this on Twitter at one point, and I, I remember you said like that nobody's working on it, but I, I'm kind of curious to just, just talk about it a little bit more detail. So something we've been doing in Rock that we found, and granted, this is a pretty different compiler between Rock and Rust, but one thing they have in common is that they both have a linking step at the end. So when we first started working on it, it was doing like the system linker with LD, and then we found, okay, LLD can be a little bit faster and stuff like that. But what we found has been incredibly fast is what we call surgical linking, which is basically that we use our sort of knowledge of the binary and like how it's going to be structured to do some sort of pre-processing ahead of time and kind of cache that. And then when you're doing it like an incremental rebuild, that's not exactly what it is, but close enough. Basically, what we can do is we can take this sort of mostly linked binary and just kind of surgically go in and be like, okay, just update this and update that and update that and not do a whole from scratch linking process. And what we found is when we do that, basically the link times just go to a rounding error. I mean, they're just, they're so, mm-hmm. it's like the the cost of like copying the file over plus some noise, which has been really cool. And I was kind of curious if, if anyone's even like kind of discussed anything like that on the linking side on Rust, or if that's just sort of like, well, let's work on LLD first. And then maybe someday we could talk about doing something like <laughs> more ambitious. Yeah. So I've never even heard anything along those lines. I tend to view the linkers as, as black boxes. Mm you know, dark arts that I don't want to touch. <laughs> and there are, there are several different black boxes and some of them are faster than the other ones. But like how, how difficult is that to get working and how much understanding of like deep linker details do you need to know to get that kind of thing working? That's a great question. So I can say a couple things on that. So first of all, one thing I can say is that I'm not the expert on this. Brendan Hansconnect and Fulkert DeVries have been the two people who've done the most work on the surgical linking. So they would know much better than I have. But both of them came in really not being experts in linkers. And what they found was sort of like by going through it, they just kind of learned as they went and, you know, found various resources and various people they could talk to. Jakub Konka, who works on Zig, uh, has actually been building a Mako linker in Zig. That's kind of his full time thing is building a new linker for Mac OS in Zig. I think it's called it looks like Zacho, like Z-A-C-H-O. It's like Zig Mako combined. Mm -hmm. But I believe that's a a fully working implementation now. So I think you can just go look at it and see how he did it. And I, I know that when he was working on that, he actually had to go as far as tracking down some Apple developers and asking them questions about how the linker works. And in some cases, the answer was actually nobody knows how this works because it's not even documented internally in Apple, like (laughs) in secret. It's just like the only way to figure out how it works is to look at the source code and and just figure out what it's doing. But apparently he's done some of that work. Sadly, I can, I can totally believe that. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think your intuition about this is sort of like a dark art is dead on, Mm. but it's a profitable dark art in terms of performance optimization, at least from what we've found. The other thing I would note is that also what people have said is that there's an element of fun to it, digging all the way down into that lowest level, pulling back the curtain on the dark art and just seeing like what it's actually like to, to do this stuff from scratch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, Jakub is at some conference coming up. He's going to do a workshop where he, it's like build your own linker from scratch, like a really, really basic one over the course of the workshop. Mm. And I think it's an elf linker uh, like for Linux. It's kind of cool just seeing people sort of rediscovering this thing where it it seems like the history of linkers is in the 70s, people built these things from scratch. And then a lot of people just completely ignored them, except for like Rui, who's made makes mold Mm -hmm. for decades. And then and now people are kind of coming back and being like, huh, maybe maybe (laughs) like half a century later, we could actually make some improvements to these things. 
I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's interesting to see there's a little bit of a, a very small linker renaissance going on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, it's a little, I'm, I'm sad that Rui seems to be struggling to find support to uh, do that work because it seem, does seem like so many people could benefit from it. Right. I mean, some of the, especially some of those huge projects like Chrome and stuff like that, from what I've heard, the reduction in compile times is just astronomical for like giant C++ projects like that. Yes. I don't know if the same would be true of Rust. I don't know if there are any Rust projects that big that are that many millions of lines of code uh, in the world. I actually have no idea. Yeah, I mean, the compiler itself would certainly benefit. Oh, yeah, good point. Is the Rust compiler using mold, like on the builds that uh, that run on CI and stuff? No, it's it, it uses just the default system linker. Mm. And, um, you know, I mentioned this issue where we're trying to get LLD as the default. I think once that's in place, then switching to mold would be an awful lot easier, I think. But you can you can use, there is a way to use mold yourself if you use the right build flags or LLD. Right. And I did experiment with mold and I did, my experiments were that if you go from the default linker on Linux to LLD, you get a big improvement. And then if you go from LLD to mold, you get a small further improvement. That, that was the same thing that we saw, yeah, for the raw compiler. Mm -hmm. It definitely seems to depend on the project, how much of a benefit you get from LLD versus mold. Yes. Yeah, I'd be curious. I don't know of anybody else on any project who's doing anything like the surgical linking we're doing, but I'd be really curious to see that to, I don't know, something along those lines applied to something like Rust. What if the goal was not, let's write a new linker, mm -hmm. but rather, we have this linking that needs to get done. If we made something that's specific to our project, how much, how, how far down could we get that step in terms of compile times? And I, I genuinely don't know what the answer is. Yeah. But for ours, that seems to be a lot. Okay. So, so that's all right. So there's cargo and you mentioned, so with cargo, you mentioned that like one of the things that can be a big factor there is how cargo in invokes Rust C. Mm -hmm. We use SC cache on like our, our CI builds and stuff like that to cache stuff. So I guess that's the type of thing you're talking about. Car cargo deciding whether or not to run Rust C versus like using a cached copy or something like that. Um, not so much that. You certainly can use SC cache or C cache, that, those kinds of tools, and that can make a difference. But it's more about, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a, big, a big Rust project that's got lots of crates, there's a dependency graph where certain crates depend on certain other crates. And so you have to compile them in a certain order and you've got this sort of tree of dependencies and the order in which the you know cargo chooses to invoke the compiler on those can make quite a big difference. Mm -hmm. Some crates take a long time to compile and some take a short time. And, and if you've got one that takes a long time to compile, you want to be overlapping other compilations as much as possible with that. Sure. And so there's this, so cargo has this uh, relatively recently added flag i think it's dash dash timings that you can just run cargo dash dash timings build and it will produce this really nice uh, basically web page that you can look at that has the, actually has a dependency graph kind of like a gantt chart if you know what that is and it tells you like you know how much how much of your cpe was being used at all these different points and how much parallelization there was available and so on and that can be really useful so you can sort of see oh this you know this one crate we spent ages where we were just compiling this one crate and there was no parallelism at that point. And if we just rearrange things a little bit, we can like break that crate into or something, we might get actually substantial speed up by improving the amount of parallelization. Is that something you can control at the user level? Like I can, I can try to like, what, what, what levers do I have to pull? Like, let's say I've got these timings. I'm like, Oh, cool. I see that like this, this, there's a big bottleneck right here because it's, it's all, you know, being done on one core. Mm -hmm. Is there some button I can press or something to. <laughs> not, not exactly. At the moment you'd have to sort of, I think basically if you restructured your code a little bit, like you split a crate in two, maybe mm. you, you can do something. There is, um, so I do, I work with, with someone named uh, Remy Rakis and he has been looking into improving this, whether you could possibly say, 
you could add like hints, almost like hints to the cargo.toml file saying, compile this one first. This one's the most important one. Get that out of the way. And then that unblocks like lots of other stuff. Or possibly even another way would, if, if you could automate this way, it would, cargo would actually record information about previous things and then learn and be able to sort of optimize this graph. That would be super cool. It would be. It's, it's hard in general because it, it, I think this rapidly gets into sort of NP-complete territory in terms of scheduling and, and so on. Sure. It seems like the type of space where there's probably some sort of 80-20 solution where you can, you can do something that's like a lot better even though it's not optimal. Yeah. And a few years ago, we got a, a big improvement where... So previously, if you've got... Say you've got crate A and crate B and crate B depends on crate A. So you have to compile crate A first. Mm-hmm. And it would, Cargo would fully compile crate A and wait till that was completely finished before starting crate B. But really, you only need like the metadata from crate A, then the types and the functions and so on. And you get that relatively early. So you don't want to have to wait for all the code generation to happen. And so we introduced what we call pipelining, which is sort of the obvious thing where you can, you do only the work that just enough to get the metadata from crate A, and then you can start crate B in parallel with the second half of crate A's compilation happening. Nice. And that made quite a difference. Like, I think the best the best speed up we saw was 1.8x. Nice. And yeah, so that that really helped a lot. And if you look at that if you look at the dash dash timings graph, you can actually see the distinction between that first part up to the metadata production and then the second part with the cogen which is in different color and so you can sort of see the overlapping going on and you can see how much benefit you get from the pipelining and that's really valuable. So yeah, I really recommend people check out the dash dash timings flag in Cargo and look at those graphs because they're very very interesting. That's a, that's a great tip. So as I, as I recall, I remember reading this somewhere that in Rust, the fundamental unit of compilation is the crate, not the module. So like uh, one crate has many modules inside of it, module being like a file or even smaller than a file. One file can have multiple modules. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying is that there's actually, there is a little bit more granularity than that in terms of splitting up code gen and everything before code gen. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to wait for every single crate to compile all the way through code gen, but rather once they get done with the metadata production that's necessary for code gen, then that, that can unblock other things having their metadata generated and things like that, other crates. Yeah, so the, the crate is still the fundamental module, fundamental, sorry, unit of compilation. Right. But you can break, yes, you can break the compilation of each crate into those two stages. And in terms of how much work you need to do on crate A before you can start crate B, there is this clear dividing line. Now, one thing I wonder there is, so you mentioned types being part of the metadata. So, so this is also something we were, we have not gotten to the stage of doing metadata that gets saved on disk in, in Rock, or even like, I guess, persisted in memory, but monomorphization. So both Rust and Rock monomorphize, which means that at, at the like type checking level, you know, you have these generic types of uh, type parameters and stuff like that. Like, you know, you have a, a list of something like a collection and it's parameterized on the element type. Uh, but of course, in both Rust and Rock, if you call like dot map on that collection, Every single time you call dot map passing a different flavor of collection, like a different element type, it's gonna generate first the the internal representation of that function, like it's like a copy pasting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you know this. This is for the benefit of people listening. Mm-hmm. After that, it's gonna um, have to then go through and do code gen for every single one of those. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'm curious about is, like you could say, let's let's persist this metadata to disk, mm-hmm. and all we need to persist this metadata to disk is just the contents of the files that are involved in this crate, mm-hmm. like save them in a cache somewhere and not redo that work later. But as soon as monomorphization comes into uh, into the picture, that kind of stops being true because now you can have other modules like outside this crate can 
make use of this thing and then require specializations that also need to get persisted somewhere if you want to cache those, or maybe you don't persist them. Maybe that's part of code generation. I guess what I'm wondering is, does the monomorphization sort of lie on the code gen side of that? And it's, it's sort of after the metadata, or is it part of the metadata and therefore it can be kind of persisted? But then of course you have to invalidate your cache whenever some other module uses a new specialization of, of some generic function from this crate. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not 100% certain. I think monomorphization is on the code gen side of that boundary. Okay, that would make sense. But I, I could be wrong. But on that, on that topic, like, yeah, monomorphization is a significant deal. So there is another tool that I can recommend, which is called Cargo LLVM Lines, like LLVM dash lines. And it's just a little profiling tool and you build your program with that and it will spit out just a bunch of text telling you all the functions that got you know, monomorphized into multiple instances and how many instances there were. And uh, mm. it's quite shocking sometimes, like there can be hundreds of, you know, common common things like vector operations and op- the option type and the result type. Some of those commonly used methods that belong to those types, like, you know, vector push and so on. Um, you can have dozens or even hundreds of instances. Wow. Yeah. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can improve that. You can like, maybe not with the standard library ones, but if, if you've got in your own code, some generic function that is instantiated a lot of times and it's quite large, you might find that you can pull out the generic part. There might be like a non-generic core and then a sort of or sort of non-generic parts and generic parts. And you might be able to split those into two functions and you end up with a generic function and then a non-generic function. And that can actually give you some significant wins. That's cool. I wonder if that's something that, that seems really hard to automate actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> More generally, there is an optimization called polymorphization, which is all about this exact problem because often... You know, a good example is like the len method for vector. It doesn't matter what your type is. Len is always the same. Oh. But currently it gets instantiated, you know, every time. Right, right. And so there's an optimization called polymorphization and the, the compiler actually has some support for it. And like there's a guy named David Wood who worked on this, but I think I'm not really certain about the state of it. I think it's still kind of experimental. I'm not sure if it works reliably or how effectively it works, but you can sort of see. So Len is an easy example. Then there are also other examples where maybe you've got some generic code, but it only depends on the size of the type, not the actual internal details of the type. So, you know, if you've got a VEC of I32 and you've got a VEC of U32, and then you've got a VEC of some other type that's four bytes, the the generic code may actually end up being identical. Right. Although then then you have to also take into account alignment, right? Because sometimes they might be the same size, but the alignment's different, and then you can get in trouble. Certainly. Yes. Yes. So there's definitely scope there, and that, that you know maybe future work um, for the Rust compiler in general. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I I didn't know about uh, that LLVM lines tool either. That that sounds like some really interesting stuff to to dig around in. Yep. Cool. Okay, but but I think so far we've we, <laughs> we've talked exclusively on stuff that you don't work on, <laughs> like cargo and like linking and mm-hmm. and cogen and stuff. Because you, you said like you you're primarily working on the Rust C side. Mm-hmm. So as I understand, there's there's a performance working group. I actually don't know like how many people are on that or like how how it's organized or anything like that. Maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, there. I guess in in theory, there's a working group. I would say it's more a loose. It's a loose group of people who sort of all on the same like. Zulip channel. Okay. I can't even, I don't even know if you've got a, an official sort of member list written down anywhere on a, on a web page or anything. But yeah, there's sort of six or seven people who look at performance reasonably often. You know, there's a couple of people that we, we have sort of performance triage that gets done once a week. And there's a rotating roster of people who look at that and look at all, all the commits that have gone in for the week and make sure that there weren't any, you know, regressions that haven't been mm-hmm. noticed or things like that. So is everybody on it like a full-time working full-time on Rust or is it like volunteers who are doing their spare time for fun or like what's the kind of composition there? It's a mix. There's some full-time people 
And I think some of those full-time people, like I work full-time on the compiler and mostly on performance. And then there are some people who work on, on other parts of the compiler and other aspects of Rust as well. There are some volunteers. It's a real, yeah, it's a real mix. Okay, gotcha. Do you specialize within the compiler on like front end or back end or I guess back end is just kind of delegated to LLVM? <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I again treat LLVM as a black box. So I just I just look at the front end, the stuff that's actually written in Rust. And, but beyond that, I just basically go wherever the profiler takes me. So I didn't enter this with any preconceptions about which part of the compiler would be slow or fast. And like over the years, I've touched quite a different number of parts precisely because you just, yeah, you go where the profiler leads you and then you're like, oh, okay, I guess I need to understand what this part of the compiler is doing. And right. <laughs> then you start looking at that in detail. And then, and then there are certain certain hotspots that I sort of feel like I fixed that and then I go away. And then a while later, oh, this this has raised its head again. But yeah, so it's it's a real mix. Okay. Just briefly talking about the back end again. That's another area that we've found a lot of big benefits in is like LLVM obviously is also quite slow to run. <laughs> and uh, so what we did is we, we talked about going to something like CraneLift, which I know there's a big project that is, I think, close to done, if I remember reading that right somewhere, mm. which is making it so that when you're doing development builds, like not with dash dash release, that it'll use CraneLift for uh, CodeGen instead of LLVM, which means that the output and executable will not run as fast, but it will be generated a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of talking about doing something like that. And we actually decided to go even more ambitious, which was like, well, CraneList still has a bunch of IRs and stuff, you know, internal uh, representations. And why don't we just cut to the chase and just go straight to machine code? Mm. Uh, so we actually have some development backends that go uh, to like x86 to ARM and then also to... Now, those are both in feature incomplete. The WebAssembly one is almost completely feature complete. It has everything except 128-bit integers, <laughs> mm. uh, which we actually might just get from our standard library anyway. And again, the performance difference is, is has has been really big there. So I'll be curious to see what CraneLift does. But I, I think uh, I, I also asked you this on Twitter, and I think you, the answer was that people are working on CraneLift, but there hasn't even been any talk of like going straight to machine code, which I think Zig and also Jai do, if I remember right. Mm. And certainly like old school languages, right? Like that's how everybody did it before LLVM. <laughs> it's like that was the only game in town. Yeah, like that's always a tricky, you know, engineering trade-off because you you can get the big the big compile time benefits. But what what's your runtime speed like? What's your code gen like your code quality like? So uh, I mean it's definitely slower, but I I would hesitate to draw any firm conclusions just because Rock's such a new language. We don't really have a big enough code base to make any kind of generalizations about it that I, I, I think mm-hmm. anything that I could say would would probably be invalidated as soon as we tried it on a bigger code base. Mm-hmm. But right now, at least, we're doing some things that arguably are pretty heinous. Like we're not even bothering to do any register allocations. We're just kind of like, just put everything on the stack, which we know is not good for performance. Mm-hmm. But the whole point is to, well, actually, that's mainly being done because it's a lot faster to implement right now. And then someday we probably will go back and add some actual like register spilling and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. I don't think that'll take too long in terms of compile times, but it should make the runtime significantly faster. Um, and also I think in some cases we need to do that, but aren't currently in order to fulfill C ABI obligations, which does come up for us at, at, at the boundary. Mm-hmm. Like internally we can get away with that, but not at the at the boundary. So at some point we're kind of anticipating needing to do that. But like I said, it's not, it's not fully feature complete yet uh, is another reason that I think, yeah, we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't try to like figure out like what what we think it how fast we think it is or not but in terms of like compile times uh i mean it's doing almost all the work that it's ever going to do right now and it's it's lightning fast like it's it's just like Mm -hmm. that part of the compile time just goes to not quite zero but like extremely small yeah and i mean now that's 
that's even after monomorphization. But to be fair, there is no rock program that's so big that as far as we know, there's like hundreds of specializations for something that's just, it's, there just aren't any that are that big yet. Yep. But it'll be interesting to see what it, what, what it does when we hopefully inevitably uh, get to that point. Yeah. And I guess the other downside is like how many targets you need to support. If, if you only need to worry about ARM and x86, right. then it's not too bad. But as soon as, as soon as somebody asks for something else, then... Yeah. So for in our case, I, we're definitely helped out by the fact that we're able to say, look, this is just for development builds. So we're kind of assuming that like people want ARM and people want x86, 64-bit x86. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. That's all we're doing. Like maybe, and of course, WebAssembly. Yeah. Now, maybe someday somebody will ask for something else, but kind of our current plan is it's like, we're just going to do those three until there's like significant dis- demand for something else and then we'll consider it. But as far as like, you know, what kinds of machines are people developing on Rock? I'm pretty confident right now that that's 100% with an asterisk and the asterisk is there have been some people running it on like a Raspberry Pi and like running the compiler directly on there. Mm-hmm. And so I know that that's like if you've got like a 32-bit like Raspberry Pi or something like that, then uh, then okay, fair enough. But that's not enough. of There there aren't enough people doing that that I think it's, uh, it's worth making a 32-bit dev uh, backend like instruction set yet, but maybe someday. I feel like there's this sort of almost conveyor belt of, it reminds me a little bit of like an analogy is with makes and models of different cars. And like, you know, the Toyota Corolla used to be like Toyota's smallest vehicle. And then over time, it's every model, every new iteration is a little bit bigger and a little bit more powerful. And so then you end up with what used to be a small car is now more like almost like a medium car. And so then they introduce a new model, which is like, oh, this is the tiny one. (laughs) There's almost like a similar thing here where like crane lift was originally, I think, designed to be, it was going to be the lightning fast really quick, not smart co-compiler. And then it's over time, I think it has gradually gotten a little heavier and a little more sophisticated. And so now you're like, and now you're, you're in this exact situation where it's, well, it's not quite as fast as we'd like, so we're going to do it ourselves. And then what will probably happen is your your different backends will get made more generic. And then maybe, oh, if we just do a little bit of peephole optimization here, we get much better results. And then, it, <laughs> and then at some point you realize that what you thought was, really simple lightning fast thing becomes this fully fledged backend that's like its own beast. And yeah, there's always that risk. So I, I think it's, it's a great point. And I think that's something that we got to be careful to like be vigilant about is make sure that we don't accidentally let that happen. I mean, may, maybe if it happens and we're like, actually, this is the right trade off. That's one thing, but yeah, to let it happen accidentally would be pretty bad. <laughs> but this is, this is a totally a standard thing in compilers. And it's probably worth pointing out that so Rust does, so the LLVM back one, LLVM backend is the production backend and that's the one that almost everybody uses. But there are there is a GCC backend and there is a crane lift backend as well that are being worked on. They're much more experimental. I'm not sure how usable they are. I think the GCC backend was is developed as much to get, just because GCC can target a lot more platforms than LLVM can, particularly obscure embedded ones. And so that's kind of the motivation there. And then the crane lift backend, I think the motivation was compile times. But I'm in, in practice, I'm not sure how much, I think it's sometimes faster and sometimes not. And maybe, yeah, I'm not quite sure the, the status of that one. Really? So like sometimes the crane lift one is actually slower than the LLVM one. I should probably walk that back. I'm not entirely sure. Fair, fair enough. I, have, I haven't seen numbers recently, but I, I just remember seeing some numbers and thinking they weren't quite as impressive as I Got it. Had perhaps hoped or expected. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting to me is is in terms of compiler performance, and I'm curious what your perspective is on this, is like the number of intermediate representations that you have between when, you know, the, the file comes in and you got the bytes coming out the other side. Mm-hmm. And it seems to vary quite a lot from compiler to compiler. Mm-hmm. 
I, I'm thinking of Turbo Pascal as if I if I remember right, was famously like a quote one pass compiler, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> just lex parse, let's go, you know, just all the way through and then bites out the other side. Which mm-hmm. if you have a language that's not doing a whole lot of abstraction type stuff, then I guess you can get away with that. But the more language features you add, the less and less feasible that becomes. But it is something that I think about a lot, and I have some long term ambitions to try and get rid of certain IRs that I think theoretically should be avoidable at least when it comes to the development backend but i might be wrong <laughs> we'll find out i think this is this is another classic compiler engineer uh sort of sinkhole or uh attractive nuisance where there's this thought where you can be like oh well we'll, we'll just add the new i the new ir at whatever level and that will fix all the problems well it certainly will introduce performance problems i mean i, I don't think anyone's ever added an ir and then the compiler got faster <laughs> yeah so so yeah exactly there again there are all these trade-offs so Rust-C has several. It's got the AST. It's got a high-level intermediate representation called here, like HIR. Mm-hmm. Then there's a slightly slight variant on that that's just called THIR, which is like a typed here. Is that pronounced there? I'm, I'm not sure. sure to be honest. <laughs> okay. A lot of these things, I've only, I've only ever read them. I've never heard anyone else say them, so I don't know. Ah, okay. And then there is the medium-level one, which is like MIR. And then we go to LLVMIR, and then we hand off to to you know LLVM to do the final step. So there are four or five depending on how you count them. But yeah, it's it's yeah, trade-offs everywhere. One of the attractive things to me about going straight to bytes is that we could avoid even however many IRs crane lift has. Mm-hmm. Is it's like we go straight from our like we have all the info we need to make machine code and machine code. <laughs> There's nothing in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is very appealing. But I mean, it is, it's absolutely a trade-off. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes the compiler author's life easier to have representation that's tailored really well to the problem space. The problem is just that constructing it is not free at, at runtime. Yeah. Or traversing it. <laughs> In the Rust compiler, I think like certain different kinds of checking happen at different levels. I think, mm. I'm trying to remember if I've got this right. I think borrow checking happens at the MIA level, mm. but like type checking happens at the, is it the here level? I think, uh, I should know this, but yeah. So there's sort of, it's quite fundamental it would be hard to eliminate those right like you like there's information you don't have with one of the irs yeah or, or the irs is much better structured and appropriate for certain types of checking but that's going to depend so much on your particular language yeah in our case and i, I think this is different in rust because in rust reference counting is is somewhat of a user space thing as, as i understand or like a standard library thing as opposed to like something that the compiler is specifically hard-coded to understand mm-hmm. but we do reference counting the compiler knows about it and in fact does can do optimizations around it. And because of that, that's actually one of the big challenges to going from, like we have our typed AST essentially, where we have like the AST plus types inf- type information. Mm-hmm. We have another IR that we we go from that to uh, what we call the, the mono IR, the monomorphized IR. Um, and then mono, from, from mono, you can go straight to machine code. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that someday we can get rid of that mono intermediary for the dev backend and just say, like, we'll probably want a different IR for optimizations because uh, right now we don't do any of our own optimizations. We just delegate all that to LLVM. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not true. Uh, we, we do some, like, in-place mutation optimizations, but we don't do our own, like, inlining, for example. Mm-hmm. Someday we'd like to. And my intuition is that it's possible because we have the information necessary to go straight from the typed AST straight to machine code. Mm-hmm. We just need to do things like you know, monomorphizing on the fly and be like, okay, well, I'll just make a, a new AST that's, you know, like specialized for, for this thing and just use the same AST we've uh, structure we've already got. Of course, the downside of that is that it makes implementing that monomorphization and structured step a lot more difficult. Mm. And especially apparently, uh, I, I don't know much about how this part of the compiler works, but apparently the reference counting stuff would be a lot harder to do without that IR. And I imagine it's the same story in Rust where even if it were theoretically possible, 
a lot of really complicated algorithms, like maybe the borrow checker would be one of them, mm-hmm. um, would just be really, really a lot harder if you had a different data structure to work with there. Yeah, I can believe that. There's even just simple things like if you've got C, you have to declare everything before you use it. Right. Whereas in a language like Rust, you don't. And so like a, a one-pass compiler is basically almost impossible. Have you ever have you ever used or heard about TinyCC? No. This is an, a, an incredibly fast C compiler. There's this guy, Fabrice Bellard, who is this sort of savant and has done a number of different... I have heard of him. <laughs> okay, yeah. He does a lot of interesting stuff. It, it, basically, the fastest C compiler you will ever see. It's just designed from the ground up to be blazingly fast. And yeah, it's one of those things, almost doesn't matter how big you your program is, you hit enter and it's done. Wow. Um, <laughs> so That's very impressive. Maybe some lessons from that to, yeah. to be learned by other people. Is that something you've looked at or I don't know, any, any lessons you've gotten? No, never any detail and I've never really used it in anger. I've just sort of, you know, okay. read a little bit about it in passing. Yeah. Something else I'm curious about was uh, we were kind of talking earlier about how do you make sure that you don't accidentally let something get slower. And I'm kind of curious what, like we, we've been talking about what tooling can we set up to try and detect when we're accidentally shipping something that's going to slow things down. Yep. And it seems like a very deep rabbit hole that you can go down. And I'm kind of curious what your what your thoughts are on it. Like, like how does it work today? You know, are there like improvements yep. on Rust? Yeah, it's it's a it's a whole it's a whole it's a whole thing. <laughs> it's a big important question. So what the way it works for the Rust compiler is we have a benchmark suite called Rust C Perf. And it's got in a round about 40 different benchmarks. Mm-hmm. This benchmark suite we we have you know, sort of grown it over time and modified it over time. About half of half of it is what we call the primary benchmarks, which are like real code, real crates. There's things like Surday and RipGrep and RegEx and, you know, well-known crates that people have heard of in it. And then the other half is sort of, there's a lot of stress tests, things that like, you know, maybe in the in the past we had quadratic performance here and then we fixed that and we want to make sure we don't regress or, or here's like a stress test that really stresses some aspect of, of the compiler like macro expansion or something and so about about half of it is that and we run this on every commit every every merge um that gets run and like the results get pasted into the github pull request so this is after the fact this is after a merge so it by default it it gets run after every merge you can request beforehand if you want to know beforehand you're concerned yeah so if you think your your change is going to affect performance either better or making it better or worse you can request a change before request a run beforehand and that's really crucial like that, that's that's the heart of the whole thing um so so running running performance checks on every commit is really important having a decent benchmark suite that like you trust and you think is actually representative is really important and we have to not only do we have a lot of different crates but we we run the compiler in a bunch of different ways on it we do check builds we do debug builds we do op builds we do some incremental ones we do non-incremental ones yeah so every crate gets compiled in like i don't know 10 or more different ways and yeah that, that that's that's the heart of it and like the harness that we run this thing through, we can run, we can do benchmarking. So we use perf mostly, and this is Linux only, which is a little bit of a shortcoming. Like we don't have any, we, we basically just hope that Linux is representative of other platforms, <laughs> which is probably true. Although, yeah. And there's gotta be some ways that they differ, but it's probably not going to be huge. I would, I would hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's really good for catching regressions. And I mentioned earlier that we have this, you know, someone does triage weekly just to make sure, you know, that any any of these PRs where there, there might have been a regression that like somebody's paying attention to it or is this regression warranted uh, or was it expected? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's really important. 
and sort of just just maintaining this this suite like last year we just sort of did a big update because several of the benchmarks were quite old at that point you know three four five years old and we're like you know rust has changed enough that maybe that code is not quite representative anymore so we interesting updated a bunch of them and then that introduces problems of like continuity if you if you change your benchmarks then you you've only got like data for that benchmark over a certain period of time and so if you want to ask the question well how are we doing versus five years ago and you've updated all your benchmarks that becomes quite difficult and so you have to sort of strike a balance we have a handful of long-term benchmarks that are now quite old sort of five or more years old so we can still have that element of sort of long-term looking back but then we don't run those ones on like every commit yeah they're more like a each new release we might run those ones gotcha so one of the things i'm curious about when it comes to not just regressions, but also making improvements is like, you know, Rust is, it's not an old language, but it's, it's been around for quite a while now. I mean, I think it's been more than a decade since 1.0. Uh, I think 1.0 is... 2015. All right. So it's more than a decade since it uh, was first released, but not since 1.0. Mm-hmm. So I know that there's there's a lot of, well, first of all, there's, there's just a lot there. I mean, it's a, the, you know, there's a lot going on in the compiler. Obviously, it's a huge code base. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the aspect of like making breaking changes to the language is ideally never done. And then if it is done, then it's it's done in like an edition, which only comes out every three years. And that's got only certain things are, are like on the table there. So when you think about uh, the interaction between performance and language design, like kind of, I, I'm curious, like what's on the table? Like one thing that comes to mind is, and actually you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I would assume that since you can have cyclic dependencies between modules and the fundamental unit of compilation is a crate, that means that trying to be more granular and say like, let's let's do module level compilation or, or caching or something like that is something that would require such a massive language change that it's not really realistic even if it might bring performance benefits by by letting you improve parallelization or cache at a more granular level and, and have to do less cache and validation. Yeah. So this makes me think uh, there's, there was a, a guy named Brian Anderson who worked on Rust quite a bit in the early days. And he has this, this blog series. I can't remember the exact name, but it's basically talking about how Rust as a language, the design of it is almost the worst case scenario for compile times. <laughs> like just the features of the language, the crate compilation the compilation model and the way things work is almost at every step. It's like the exact opposite of what you would want if you were designing a language to be compiled fast. <laughs> I can't remember many of the details, so I won't claim any expertise on, on that particular aspect. Sure. But yeah, I, I tend to figure, think of the language as fixed and I, I try not to go down that rabbit hole of, oh, well, it wouldn't be nice if okay. we could make big changes to the language because it's not really practical. Yeah, I, I mean, I always... You know, it's it's a pipe dream, right? It's like it's like, what if a new edition comes out where you can opt into like you know modules, m- module level granularity mm-hmm. for some of these things? But I, I guess uh, if anyone would know if that's on the table, it's probably you. <laughs> so I probably shouldn't get my hopes up. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I, I, I'm I'm not a language person. Like I'm a language design person. You know, there's the Lang team and then the people and all that sort of stuff. And I'm sort of not really one of those people. So I'm right. Not necess- not necessarily the best person to ask about that. Right. I mean, maybe it's just because like Rock is so small right now. But like we don't have teams. We have like the team that works on Rock. <laughs> there's like a half dozen of us. You know, that meet periodically. Yeah. And so everybody talks about everything. And I bet Rust Rust in 2010 was like that. I'm sure. Yeah, back in the day. Maybe one day you'll be successful enough that like Rock has like 10 different teams and like nobody knows what's going on. Or, <laughs> uh, no, no single person has more than, you know, a partial picture of what's happening. Yeah, but but I mean, but it is, it is kind of cool to hear about like some of the challenges that, that Russ has faced, you know, and, and maybe, you know, even if it were like everybody talks to everybody, every team, like the, the teams are totally, you know, 
porous barriers and everything. It might be that people talk about it and be like, yeah, we shouldn't do that. That's just not, that's not a good project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's cool to think about like, is there, is there a way that we could try to encourage that as rock grows, try to encourage at least having those conversations? Because mm-hmm. it seems like, I mean, the way that Rust is organized is in a lot of ways, like really impressive because it's so many people working on such a huge, incredibly, incredibly complicated code base. Mm-hmm. And it ships a new release every six weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Having worked at organizations that were much smaller and shipped stuff way less frequently, it's just very impressive. But it does sound like this is a case where, and maybe it wouldn't affect the outcome anyway, but at least there, there's some opportunity to improve. Yeah, I guess, and probably... The thing that comes to mind is, is is what you focus on in the early days of the language are going is, that's going to persist, right? And the, the things that you let slide in the early days are going to be hard to recover. And I think it's probably a case where compile time with Rust was not on anyone's radar, yeah. Which is fair enough because like they were solving so many other problems, oh yeah, and did an amazing job to do that. And so this kind of feeds into this what Brian Anderson was saying about it being the worst possible design for compile times because <laughs> like I first started looking at optimizing the compiler in 2016, which was after 1.0. And yeah, it was pretty clear to me straight away that not much work had to be done on this. Like I was finding low hanging fruit, very, very low hanging fruit quite easily. Nice. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think just, no, just, it wasn't, it wasn't a concern and therefore that's sort of almost like a, a permanent handicap. Whereas if, if, you know, you're still in early days of rock and you've got some fluidity and the, the language can change. And if you start thinking about compile times, which sounds like you are, yeah, then maybe you're going to realize, oh, well, if we just tweak this language design feature, that will, will make life a lot easier. And, you know, in the long run, that'll win. And then correspondingly, you see people trying to add safety features to C++. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't really work, so... There's something, there's an aspect of it to it that's kind of scary because it's, you know, that like once, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, nothing's set in stone. But once you have a certain mass of users, it's like, well, if you make a significantly breaking change, you're going to have a lot of angry users and mm-hmm. that can become your reputation. And, and that's, yeah. you know, it's, it's easy with the benefit of hindsight to say like, oh, well, obviously everyone should have known that Rust against absolutely all odds would become mm-hmm. the, the wild success that it has. Um, I mean, what are the odds that like a, you know, as Graydon described it in a tweet I saw once, linear ML and C++ clothing. Imagine that becoming like a basically a mainstream language that people are eagerly switching from C++ to. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, who who had the crystal ball to predict that? <laughs> yeah, I think it, I, I, I sort of view Rust as kind of a miracle that, that it exists and, and if the, the various pieces fit together as well as they do. So if you want like this, if you're talking about this being scary, do you know, like, you know, the story of JavaScript and how it came to be? I, I've heard <laughs> variations of the story, but. So the short version is Brendan Ike said, I think we should have a scripting language in like, I guess it was Netscape. And they said, okay, you've got 10 days to do it. And he was like, okay. And then I think he basically didn't sleep for 10 days and like came up with this language that kind of worked but has a bunch of like weird stuff in it because you know languages normally take like five or more years to design not 10 days like it's just utterly absurd yeah and it you know blew up and became this huge thing and it's now the most popular language in the world and they've been gradually sanding off rough edges for years but like there's so many weird things that brendan put in those 10 days that are still people are still working around today and having to deal with and, and so on right i think he's got he's got he's got some blog posts talking about the history of that time that are really quite fascinating to read about one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten was from Evan Chaplicki, who made Elm, and Rock is a direct descendant of Elm. So there's there's a lot that Rock takes very directly from Elm anyway, but mm-hmm. his philosophy around 
language design things where you're you're not feeling confident about it, you're not sure which way to go, is that it's a lot easier to add freedom later than to take it away after you regret mm. adding it. Like if if you have the option between saying, oh, let's let's make this flexible so people can do whatever they want here, mm-hmm. it might turn out that it's like, oh no, that means that we can't rely on this thing being true, which means we can't implement this optimization or that whatever other thing mm-hmm. you want to do with the compiler or the compiled output or whatever it is. But if you take the attitude of like, well, let's let's not give people a ton of freedom up front. Let's add freedom once we actually are confident about what the implications are and what doors we're closing mm-hmm. by adding that. And I think the the C and C++ example that you gave, like people are trying to add safety features and it turns out that's a really, really hard thing to do when you've given people maximum freedom like those languages do. And like yeah. Rust takes the opposite approach and defaults to like, okay, you know, we have a lot of restrictions on how you do things. You're going to get a lot of borrow checker errors, but look what the end result is. You actually have a lot of confidence in in your code is not going to seg fault. It's not going to, I mean, it can, but yeah. it's, you're not fearful of it all the time. Like I certainly am whenever I write C code or, or that like, you know, there might be buffer overruns or things like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it's true. Same is true performance. Yeah. And JavaScript is, is another great example of this where it's very flexible, like so dynamically typed. <laughs> yeah. You, you see these lists of, the plus operator and like if you give it different types if you add a string to a number and it, and it, it will do its dandest to come up with something <laughs> that sort of works right and and then and the rationale was like i think brendan talks about this like the idea is that with web code the user the distance between the user and the programmer is very wide and so the, the user generally has no way of talking to the programmer so you just want to try and be as sort of permissive as you can and, and just try and keep things going as much as you can and that has so many terrible knock-on effects in terms of performance is really hard because because sure. it's so dynamic and again uh like type checking and correctness it's so hard and you know in ECMAScript 5 they introduced the use strict sort of thing which is this hack that right rest- restricts a lot of things that are like really painful because they're too dynamic and too too open-ended yeah that's that's that like trying to remove freedom after the fact after you regret <laughs> yeah yeah and then type typescript is another example like well we're just going to make a whole new language that yeah restricts things further by adding types. So so yes, I think that's good advice about keeping things tight to begin with and loosening them as you go. Yeah. But hey, I mean, at the end of the day, like Rust has been incredibly successful and I a very happy Rust user. Uh, I mean, I, I wish it, I still wish it were faster and I appreciate again like that you're you're making it faster. Yeah. But I think it's easy to take for granted that that it got this successful at all. Yeah. And it's easy to go back and say, "Oh, you you should have spent more time designing for compiler performance, knowing that linear ML and C++ closing was going to blow up, as opposed to just trying to make it actually work and useful in the first place, which I think was a big enough challenge. Yeah, I think it's easy for people to adjust their baselines and not realize they're doing it. And and I try to keep perspective in, in terms of that this language exists and it works. And sure, there are some warts and there are some corners, but the, the core of it is so, so good. Yeah. And like solves some such huge problems that like it's it's miraculous. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel, you know, I'm really happy that I, I get to work on it. It feels like a, it's a real privilege to 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 be a part of that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a part of something big for sure <laughs> in the history of programming. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Anything else we should talk about uh, before we wrap up? I don't know. I think we've, we've touched on some good stuff. Yeah, I definitely learned a lot about uh, and also some new tricks. So thank you for those. No problem. I guess in terms of like, Future speed ups of the Rust compiler. Oh, delicious. Let me let me know. <laughs> I'd love to hear about it. Well, it's more like a case of it's getting harder. Oh. <laughs> okay. I, I talked to I talked about in the early days there was a lot of low hanging fruit and like there is not much low hanging fruit anymore. I see, I see. 
well, hey, maybe if you talk to the LangDev team, uh, that could change. <laughs> you could find some new uh, opportunities with the next edition. Who knows? So one thing, I mean, one, one obvious thing is we there there is a there is a parallel version of the compiler. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, like literally, like it, it works. You can if you build the compiler yourself in the in the config.toml file that sets up all the configuration of the compiler. You just add the, there's a line you can add parallel compiler equals true, and it will build a parallel version of the compiler. Huh. And by default, it's it adds a whole lot of synchronization to lots of structures but by default it runs on a single thread but you can ask for it to run on multiple threads and currently gives mixed results sometimes it's a speed up sometimes it's a slowdown so this is like within rust c so like cargo will run multiple instances of rust c and parallelize that way but this is like each individual rust c program yes is parallel itself yep so it's it's, a, it's like a threaded front end to, to rust compiler interesting and it's built on rayon and and yeah so that introduces some big opportunities, but also a whole lot of scariness. <laughs> sure. So that's one 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 possible area. Another thing I should probably mention is is the performance book, which I am the author of. So there's it's just the Rust. It's called the Rust Performance Book. It's got lots of little tips and tricks for how to make Rust code faster. Lots of people seem to have gotten good value out of it. So if you're not aware of that, that's a good thing for people to uh, nice, yeah to read. It's not terrible. It's called a book, but it's not terribly long. If you print it out, it would probably be about around about thirty pages. I, I deliberately try to keep it quite succinct and not uh, expand it out into very long examples. I keep it keep it pretty pretty tight. Sure. So that's got a lot of a lot of stuff, particularly for for people who are newer to the language that might not know a lot of the tricks. Cool. Yet another good tip <laughs> to come out of this for, for people writing Rust. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to me about all these things. This has been really interesting. I, I learned a lot. And it's always just cool to hear like stories from people who are actually working on like making a, a really an already great language even better. So thanks again. Well, thank you for having me. It's been it's been fun. Like I said, I think it's it's a privilege to work on Rust. I think it's a really great thing, and uh, I'm I'm lucky to be able to 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 be a part of the story. Very nice. All right, thanks. Thank you. Bye.